Welcome to a new episode of Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. In this podcast, we talk with Latinos working in the tech industry and share tools on how to take your career to the next level. If you're watching the video version of this episode, remember to like the video and subscribe to our channel. If you're listening to the audio version, you can give us five stars on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Feedback is always welcome, so you can write to us at hello at latinoswhotech.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm so happy to have you in this podcast now. Super excited. And I'm happy that we're not going to have to fight with Spanglish, like in the Spanish episode, because we can actually get a bit more technical and dig deeper into what you do every day. Yeah, it's a bit easier, I would say, in English, just because I've studied my whole life in English. So yeah, in, Span in Spanish, I tend to go to Spanglish. I don't know who said this, but somebody said that the language of science is English with an accent. <laughs> so we can definitely check that box. Yeah. So tell me a bit about yourself and how do you get to Google? Sure. I studied engineering management in Chicago, so the Windy City. I studied engineering management and I specialized in civil engineering. And then as part of my time in the university, I joined SHIP the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. And as a part of that, I was involved in a lot of the planning of a lot of different events. And eventually there was a conference that was for students looking to look for internships, essentially. So internships in a new, in a new field. And I did the interviews with Goldman Sachs because I had a lot of friends that were actually applying there. And some of them have already gotten jobs at Goldman. They were recruiting for operations and operations. The good thing about it is they'll take any major that has any, basically any major, anything you've studied. It's a pretty wide range of skill sets. So I applied to operations. I actually got the internship. Then I got the job in New York. So I moved from Chicago to New York. I was working more in the back end of operations, but at the same time trying to figure out, okay, I did study engineering. I am technical. So what kind of things can I bring to more of an operational role that comes right. from my engineering studies? As part of that, I started looking into the dashboards that the team were using and try to figure out ways in which I could maybe own the dashboards myself and how to improve some of the data management, data analysis that we were doing in the team. That then led to someone else within the company kind of tapping me on the shoulder and saying, I've seen your skills. I know that you have technical skills. I would love for you to come and join this new team that I'm building, which is a management and strategy team. So that involves a bit of the technical skills, but also speaking to upper management. And I think you'd be really good at it. So I think the whole takeaway of this is sometimes out of college, you might not get exactly the first land, the first job that you want. And because I'm not American, I needed to just go into a job immediately after college because that was the only way for me to stay in the U.S. I couldn't be picky. I couldn't say, I'm going to decline this job and wait until I get my dream job. That, that wasn't an option for me. So I just went for it. But there's always something that you're going to learn and something that you can take from your first job. So it's just figuring out 
how to adapt into that circumstance and then also bring in your own added value and your own skill set to the job. And eventually that'll lead you to where you want to go. Fast and I love that you bring the, sorry about that. And I love that you bring forward the fact that you cannot be picky if you're here on a student visa and you wanted to transition to get a job visa, an H-1B, because there is a cap. There's yeah. only 110,000 of them a year. Uh, yeah, so exactly. to get one of those spots, you actually have to excel and really market yourself. When you find an opportunity that will sponsor you, you really have to do the legwork. Yeah, exactly. And at the same time, it was I realized that, but I also knew that an operation in operations, that wasn't exactly the role that I wanted. So I was just trying to figure out, okay, I'm already in the company. Can I just switch teams? And can I find something else that's better suited to my skill set? And once I did, all of that then led to me actually moving from the operations division into engineering. So I did actually end up doing a transfer, an internal transfer into the engineering division and working as a data engineer. I didn't get the visa. So anyways, I ended up leaving the U.S., but I stayed with Goldman and Goldman transferred me from New York to London. So they did that whole process for me, which was much easier to then stay actually in London. And then after doing data engineering for a couple of years, I think I did it for around three, three or four years, I realized that there was this whole other field, which was data analytics. And when the pandemic started, I figured we're at home, might as well make really good use of my time and be very productive. So I did a master's at Imperial College. So it was a master's in business analytics, which I just graduated a couple of weeks ago. Congrats. Um, <laughs> thank you. And then ultimately, that is what led me to Google into the role that I'm in right now. That's fantastic. And I think that, again, it's so important when you are mapping out your career, thinking, having that conversation with your manager and director and, hey, I have this situation. How can we find a mutually agreeable solution? And I have friends that have done it, that they didn't get the H-1B in the first round. But like my, I have a friend that he is also has a, is a Spanish citizen. So wait, but we have an office in Spain. You can work out of there yeah. and, and we'll work it out. And then we'll apply for the next round next year. So it, there's ways of working the problems. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people ask me, like, do you wish you would have stayed in the U.S.? Do you wish things would have happened a bit differently? And I think at the end of the day, this whole journey happened and it was a very nonlinear journey, right? Like I started... I studied engineering, but I ended in finance, in operations, and then moved to engineering to then switch to big tech. So it was very nonlinear. But all of those experiences and everything and all of the mentors that I had along the way, that led me to then find the position that I'm in right now, which is really my dream role and the mix of all of the skill set and all of the things that I wanted to have at the end of the day. But I couldn't have visualized that as a, as a senior fresh out of college. There's no way. <laughs> Yeah, you have to try before you buy, if you will. Yeah. You have to. You know, so some things you only learn by doing them. Exactly. You know? And so let's talk analytics. So what does an analytical consultant do at Google? What does an analytical consultant do at Google like day to day? What is an analytical consultant? 
Yeah, I would say that an analytical consultant has this mix of both the technical skill set as well as more of the human, social, client-facing type skills. So it's really a merge of both. And what we do is that we identify and we research challenges and opportunities to help our clients and advertisers essentially grow their business. And we do this by leveraging commercial insights. So any type of like actionable insight that helps them inform their media strategies and unlock opportunities for growth at the end of the day. So we, that might be, for example, that in one case, I'm working on a quite a technical analytical type project. It could be that in another case, I'm working on something that's more brand related. Maybe I'm looking at what audiences our customers can target to when it comes to a YouTube strategy, for example. Got it. So how does that differ from a regular data scientist world? Yeah, so I would say a data scientist is more technical than we are. So a data scientist might be working on developing machine learning models, doing a bit more predictive type models versus a analytical consultant. You need to be able to retrieve data and understand SQL and databases and be able to work with that, but you don't necessarily need Python skills, for example. That would be a nice to have, but it's not an essential skill set to being an AC. Everyone manipulates the data and does their data analysis in different ways. Like you might do it in Google Sheets. That's completely valid. I might do it in Python just because I have the Python knowledge and the Python skills, and I find it easier to sometimes do some specific things in Python than in Google Sheets, for example. But the only real technical skill that you need to have would be SQL and then the data visualization skill set. So the data visualization skill set, I say, would be one of the things that stands out the most from ACs because data scientists don't necessarily need to be able to visualize the data and put a story together, right? There's not as much of the data storytelling component because you're not selling something to a client. But as an AC, you are a seller. You sit within the sales organization and part of your role is to actually bring revenue. That is your role, to bring revenue back mm -hmm. to the business. So in order to do that, you need to have this like pitch mentality, which goes hand in hand with data viz, data storytelling. Can you double click on the data visualization aspect? What does that entail? From And feel free to get technical if you want. Yeah, so in the data viz aspect, we work to essentially imagine you have one you have this opportunity for your client where you really think that they should be investing their money in this specific niche category let's come up with an example but it's electric cars uh-huh so let's say electric car demand has been increasing in the last couple of years and specifically for the suv segment and you can see this from search from the searches that people make, right? So that's your data. Your data set is people's searches, index searches. So you identify this opportunity through data analysis, through either SQL, Google Sheets, whatever you have. But essentially, you see that the demand has been growing through time. And so you want to pitch this to your client so that they invest more money with Google Ads so that they can then sell more cars because you know that their mm -hmm. objective is to be the number one EV brand in the UK, right? So now right. I'm already connecting the client's business objectives and their business side to what Google can offer. 
and how we can meet that sweet spot. So next step would be to actually build out a pitch. In order to build out a pitch, I need to first align with the customer's objective. So I would start by saying, we know that you want to be the number one EV brand this year. And then from there on out, I start bringing in the Google data. So I'll start saying EV queries grew by 10% this year when you compare it to last year. And you are actually currently the number four EV brand, not number one. So now I'm bringing in some benchmark and trying to bring together the whole story, right? To make it a bit more appealing. And then I say, but if you invest in this specific category in the SUV space where not all the clients are investing in right now, you have an opportunity to then grow your market share and get to what your business objective is. Now, from a data viz perspective, how do you do this? You need to, one, make sure that each slide that you're presenting has only one thing that you want the client to get out of it. So it needs to be, you need to declutter, you need to think about the main objective of your slide. You need to ensure that, so it's not necessarily like a data viz that'll be a super complicated data visualization, right? Because your stakeholder is marketing. So they're not necessarily going to be super technical people that are going to understand a bubble chart with three different axes. So you need to think a little bit more about how you're going to bring your message to your audience and what you want them to get out of it. A lot, of, To be honest, I do all of this in Google Sheets. That's I do my data viz and it's what works best. Yeah, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Exactly. <laughs> the best tool is the one you know the most. And currently that's, yeah, Google Sheets. <laughs> that's fantastic. How does BARD help you? If at all, are you leveraging the new technologies that, that BARD can help you with? On the job, not really. I'm trying to figure out how to bring it in on the job to make myself a bit more productive. I would say that I have used it for things like I have this really messy data set that has this type of structure. How do can you write a couple lines of code that just gets it into this structure that I want it to be in? That has worked out for me and that does save me time. I haven't yet found another way aside from the data viz component as well. If I am building something in Python to just say, where do I, or can you rewrite the code and change the color to dark blue, for example, mm -hmm. instead of me having to go through the code and through all the paperwork to under all the resources to understand how to actually change the color to dark blue. <laughs> Got it. No, that's, uh, that's helpful. That's helpful. I feel like it's impossible to stay up to date with everything that's happening in AI right now. So I always find it interesting to see how other professionals are actually using it because it's so new. Some of these things are so new and some of them are just proofs of concepts, right? So they don't really, they're meant to showcase, hey, this could be done, but at the end of the day, hey, I still need a person to actually look at the thing and put up a pitch together. Like in my case, I haven't used BARD as much, but I use more ChatGPT mm -hmm. to help me to do outlines of presentations. Or yeah, I, exactly. so, when you have a blank page. Exactly. Like, okay, yeah. give me five ideas to do this. And four of them are crap. One is salvable. <laughs> like one of them, it's okay, I could actually use it. And then tweak it. So it's for me, it's great. These tools are great for fighting with the blank page 
but yeah, but they're no, not a substitute when it comes to human creativity and actually coming up with good ideas. Yeah, I could definitely see myself using it for, I have this story in my mind, this data story, help me structure it. Help me figure out how to structure it into a 10-page deck, for example. Yeah, I've done that where I have my outline for a presentation done and I will ask it, hey, take this outline and make a markdown table with which images could I leverage to make a point for each okay. slide. Yeah. So then I just have a list of slides to build. But I, but I made the story myself. Yeah. So I, and I know the call to action for each one. I made it myself. But I just need some help. Like at that point, maybe it's like 4 p.m. And I'm like, oh, okay, my brain is shot. And okay, well, ChatGPT, come here. <laughs> You're on deck. <laughs> so what does your day-to-day -day look like or week-to-week? -week? Because you mentioned that you are embedded into the sales organization. So I'm curious on... And feel free to share as much as you can. Do you have a lot of meetings? Do you have a lot of heads down time when you're coding, analyzing data? What does your day-to-day -day look like? So it's really a mix of both of the things that you mentioned. So for example, on tomorrow, I actually have a client meeting. So I'll be taking the train out of London to go visit a client, spend the day there. And then tomorrow on Tuesday, I'll be in the office, so I might schedule some focus time and put my head down and work on a little bit more of the coding or technical side of stuff. Take my Put my head down and work a bit more on data analysis, for example. So it'll be a mix of both. Either I have a client lunch or a client meeting and it's in-person, it's social, and it's that fuels me as well. Having that interaction with the client, I think, is amazing. But then also being able to come back into the office and just put my head down and work on the data analysis part of it. That's great. That's great. So what would you say are some of the like must-have skills? You want to be an analytics consultant at Google. What are the must-have skills? that the, Not the nice-to-have like the Python, but the must-have yeah, I would say having that like strategic analytical mindset. And I know that's very broad, but I would say that the interview questions for an AC role demonstrate that is something that you need to have. So it might be, for example, how do you explain something that's very technical to someone that's non-technical? Or how do you think about, tell me about a time that you use data and insights to drive revenue or to or to get a stakeholder to take some action and make a business decision off the back of it. So it's really putting together both a strategic and analytical mindset with then having those communication skills of convincing stakeholders to think about things differently, to challenge the status quo and to get them to take an action off the back of it. Yeah, having that confidence that to say, I don't know, or having that confidence that it's not about getting more data. It's about answering the question, what do you really want? I think a big reason why our jobs are safe <laughs> from AI is that the AI is only going to give you what you ask. And you have to ask clearly. Yeah, you have to know what question to ask. And that's the first, that's the hardest part, really. Yeah, because I saw this tweet about somebody saying that, hey guys, our jobs are safe because... If customers, you know that customers are not 
very clear right off the beginning of what they want. <laughs> yeah, you have to build that rapport. You have to have a yeah. couple meetings and you have to have that mutual understanding of, hey, you want me to give you green avocados and then next meeting you have to confirm hey the green avocados you still want them right <laughs> like you have to actually have that rapport and it, it takes time it takes time to build that rapport with people with customers that's why you have multiple touch points and you have a mm -hmm. dedicated and account executive and, exactly. and you have somebody that knows their customer better than anybody else than anyone company. else yeah Yeah, and that's exactly it. Like a lot of times we call them discovery meeting. That's mm. really a meeting where we just sit there and we listen. We listen to what are your current challenges? Is your current challenge the chip shortage in the inventory? I'm making a lot of reference to cars because what I do is specific mm -hmm. to the auto industry, to automotive brands. But is your current challenge still inventory? Is it that you need customers to better understand what an EV car does, like education around it. Is it sales targets? What is your challenge so that we can then come in and help you solve that challenge? But yeah, that discovery questions part is very important to our job as well. So tell me a bit more about the, and again, only what you can share, the interview process. Everybody has this idea of Google as one of the dream companies you want to work in in fang or manga now you know that but i'm curious on what what does the interview process for an analytical consultant look like yeah so you have and i guess depending on the specific role that you're applying for so if it's an ac role it'll be quite different if you're applying to a product analyst or a data scientist role, because as I said, those are going to be more technical. So likely we'll have actual coding interviews there for an AC role. And I can only speak on behalf of my specific of interviews, but for my AC role, there was a couple of coding questions, but it was more so a verbal discussion. So explain to me the difference between a inner join and a left join, for example. There wasn't really a coding interview per se, as, as you know them. And then the bulk of the questions were, as I said, more related to data storytelling, business insights. Explain to me a time that you had to explain something technical to someone non-technical or a time that you had to manage stakeholder relationships or that you worked with clients. My previous job at Goldman was... I would say an internal consultant type role. So I, a lot of my, the answers to my interview questions, they were referring to internal teams within Goldman as my client. So even though I had never had an external client, mm. I was still trying to figure out, okay, but I have had relationships with other teams internally, and those were my clients. So I can refer to them as a, as that like client relationship management, right? Definitely. So it's knowing your own resume and knowing how can you translate it into a way that shows showcases that, hey, I do have the experience. Exactly. Like a, maybe a product manager, you call it a different thing here, but the job is the same. So it's, yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. Yeah. And there were other jobs that I had applied for. I won't name companies specifically, but they, the interviews were definitely more coding based. So mm -hmm. I think that just stand out in the AC role and having that mix of the technical side, but not necessarily needing skills like Python, just needing a bit of the, the standard like SQL skills 
with the business side. I would say that the interviews really reflect the type of role that it's going to be. Because some of the other interviews, it was the first off the bat interview was a coding, a one hour coding interview. And I knew from the code that wasn't exactly the role that I wanted because I really was very, I knew what I wanted. I knew that the next role that I was going to have had to have this mix of both business side, but also the technical side, not have it be just purely a technical role. And I think that's why it's so important as well to keep that good conversation going with a recruiter, with a hiring manager, because they might see that, hey, maybe you are not a good fit for this pure coding job, but I really like you and your experience. And there's this analytical consultant job or this junior data science position that I think will be a better fit to your goals yeah. and to what the company needs now. Having a clear but positive relationship with a recruiter, that, that's so important. Yeah, and I think at the same time, like reflecting internally on what is it exactly that you want to do and work in? I think we, we talked about that at the start. I couldn't be picky right? mm -hmm. because I had the visa situation, but that was eight years ago. I'm now eight years later in an analytical career, and I'm trying to figure out what exactly is it that I want. And at that point in time, it was that mix of both of those things. It might be that later on down the line, I actually do want to move into a technical, a more technical role. So product analyst, data science type role. And I think it's okay to evolve and to, ha and to think about it as a journey, right? Mm -hmm. To think about all the iterative steps that you'll make and all the different kind of flavors and mixes of skill sets that you can put together into your resume. Definitely, definitely. And that's how you build a career. You grab experience from different parts and you, know, you build your toolbox. Exactly. You know, your, your technical toolbox, your people skills toolbox. I don't like the word soft skills. I hate it because it's like, it makes it sound like it's not as important. Like and, it's not and, as important. And yeah. no, it's just people skills. You just, can you collaborate? Can mm -hmm. you be assertive when you need to be assertive? Your time management skills, like all those things are so important. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight them as well, even if you are applying to a technical role. And if you think it might not be an added value to a technical role, it will definitely be because there's always a stakeholder at the end of the day that needs to make a decision for the team. And you might be the person that is able to translate what the team is doing, which might be something super technical to mm -hmm. a stakeholder that maybe isn't as technical. So I would definitely say if you worked in other roles that aren't technical at all, there's still a way to translate that into how that can be beneficial and then added value to a technical role that you might be applying for. Definitely. And you've been very generous with your time and, and, and I want to thank you for that. But before I let you go, I'm curious, how do you like to manage your time? How do you stay organized? Like which tools are you leveraging to actually make sure that you're doing the things that you need to get done? I think it's definitely hard and being an AC means you have tons of different requests and priorities coming from different angles. So that's definitely something that I've had to figure out how to manage in my current role, which is very different to a data eng type role where you have one big project, you have a project manager that manages all the timelines for you, you work in sprints, you know what you need to achieve in each of these. and. It's just one big overarching project versus now I have 40 projects going on at the same time and I need to figure out how to prioritize them. 
So I think first of all, it's figuring out what is going to drive the biggest impact for the firm and being able to sort them in that way, having the conversation with my sales head of what she thinks is going to bring the biggest impact and are we aligned on the same goals, essentially. And then in terms of actual time management, I would say Google Tasks is definitely my best friend because you can set the deadline for each of those tasks and you can link it to an email and essentially you can go into the task and then it'll pop up the email thread that has all of the context of the task that you need to achieve and you can sort it in descending order by time. So you know exactly which one is the one that you need to achieve first for this week and then you can have the satisfaction of actually like ticking it all, which is very important. <laughs> yeah, that dopamine hit is important. Like checking yeah. things off, that, that's very important. Yeah, I think the combination of all of those things, but then also realizing that sometimes you don't need, things don't need to be 100% ready in order for mm. you to send it to someone and get feedback on it. And sometimes going that little extra effort, which might take you like, a whole other week is not necessarily worth it. Mm. I think in these roles, like making sure that you're actually producing a lot of stuff versus obviously quality is important. I'm not, it's not important, but I think there's a fine balance between. Both. Right. Because maybe the window of opportunity to influence this is a month. If you submit it within that month, that's, that's all you got to hit. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's so many dependencies, right? You're not doing stuff in a vacuum. You're not doing stuff just because it's nice to do stuff. Analyzing data sets just for the sake of analyzing data sets. Okay, like which opportunities out there we can leverage right now? Because guess what? If you wait to do this in six months down the road, maybe the opportunity is not there. Oh. And I think that you say that is, is super interesting because especially in these types of roles where we work in on a quarter by quarter basis. So at the end of the quarter... We'll be like, we'll look at the overall impact, the revenue figures, et cetera, of how the UK performed within that quarter. So sometimes if you were to get it like a couple of days late after the quarter, you hit that quarter deadline. Q1 is closed. It's done. You know what I mean? And yeah. our clients also have their own timelines of budgets. When they set their budgets, when they need to launch like a new car or whatever that may be. So it is very important to be timely as well and the opportunities that you're presenting. So knowing what you know now about the job and working at Google and uh, working with your British counterparts, how would you prepare for a job in analytics? Let's say you're a young professional starting out and huh, this sounds really cool. How would you go about preparing for a job there? Which resources would you leverage if you were starting out today? I would say I would definitely take a couple of data sets from Kaggle or from your own data set. So you can request like your own data from Spotify. You can request your own data from Uber and use your personal data and use, do a couple of really interesting data analysis into your own data. Like maybe take a look at what was your most expensive Uber ride and the distribution of, I don't know, how much you paid for each of those rides throughout a year's time and visualize it put it together into some sort of deck, almost as if you were presenting it to someone. Because that, again, going back to that balance of having both of those skill sets, I think it's really, it's easier to 
exercise that muscle of your technical skill set. Because you can sit down, you can do all these projects, you can code, you can come up with like really interesting solutions. It's much harder to do the other side of it, which is the communication and the stakeholder management without actually living and breathing it, if, if that makes sense. Like you, you can stay at home and you can code all day. You can't necessarily stay at home and pretend that you have a meeting with, a, with five different stakeholders from five different teams. It's a bit harder to do that. So I would say that for that side of the skill set that you need for an AC type role, podcasts are my favorite thing to listen to, really, to get that added that added like experience and value of people that have worked in these types of roles and understand that communication and stakeholder influencing part of it. There's also another podcast that I listen to called Squiggly Careers. They're actually really good at giving a tons of advice on this communication and part of managing your career, essentially. That's fantastic. Adding that to the show notes for sure. That's awesome. Uh, Gabriela, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Anything else you'd like to share? I would say just don't be scared of trying something new and stay, stay up to date to everything that's happening. I think follow, I follow tons of people on LinkedIn and all the time. I, LinkedIn is my new Instagram. That's how I'm turning 30. That I wake up <laughs> and I scroll through LinkedIn instead of Instagram. That's a t-shirt uh, <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, but yeah, it's really interesting to see how people are using like AI, Nowadays, you can run tons of different machine learning models all at once and just find the one that gets the best, has the best fit or produces the best, the best fit instead of having to run each of these manually, for example, or write the code for each of these. There's like auto machine learning models. There's so much that you could do nowadays that it's even hard to just keep track of them. Mm -hmm. So I think knowledge or the biggest value nowadays is simply following people that are talking about these things and making sure you're plugged into those conversations. Definitely. And if you want to follow Gabriela, her LinkedIn is in the show notes. <laughs> and let us know in the comments, what do you think of the episode and which kind of professionals you want to see in future episodes. And I just have to say thank you so much, Gabriela. Really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be back in, in English instead of Spanglish. Definitely. Ciao, ciao.